start with a question. What do a diamond ring, a loaf of bread, and a cup of coffee have in common? You don't have to raise your hands and answer, but I'll tell you. The answer is that they all have great value, but their value only exists as a byproduct of harvesting first raw materials that naturally exist and then applying various means of process and pressure to those raw materials to then produce something that we would call precious. I have a diamond ring right here. This diamond ring, we would call it valuable. In fact, this one is very valuable. It belongs to one of you that's sitting here, and you've entrusted it to me with your life and my promise that should I lose it or should I damage it, I'll have to pay the cost of replacing this. But what is it? It's a gold band with a diamond set within it, naturally occurring substances, but there's been pressure and process applied that has formed and shaped this to make it something that is valuable. First, the gold is mined. Then it's put into a crucible where it's refined and all of the worthlessness is taken away. The diamond is found, mined again, but then also cut into the perfect shape, the biggest shape that can bring symmetry and sparkle and value. Then it's sent, the gold and the diamond, to a smelter who, again, heats it up, molds it, sets the diamond and polishes it and then sells it, and thus we have a thing of value. Well, how about the loaf of bread? The loaf of bread, also something that has great value. But again, not in itself. We don't find this useful thing like this. First, we harvest the wheat. And then once the wheat is, you know, taken through that process of buried in the ground and then sprouting and growing up and then feeling the weight of the elements upon it and then falling to the ground and being harvested and then stomped and then ground and then mixed with water and kneaded as pressure is applied in the hand of the baker. And then it's molded and shaped and put into a pan and then finally it's put into an oven where it faces insane temperatures while it bakes and cooks and comes out as this useful, valuable thing that sustains life, a loaf of bread. How about a cup of coffee? A cup of coffee. Again, the beans, they're harvested. And in their raw form, you'd almost say, well, I don't know what this thing even does. It's a Large seed that has a thin silver skin around it, and should you eat it, it wouldn't taste very good, and it would probably break your teeth. But somebody figured out that if you dry process that bean, strip it of its silver skin, and leave a dull-colored, sheenless green, and then let it dry, and then roast it at the perfect temperature until it cracks, not too short, but not too long, leaving it burnt and unuseful, but at just the right temperature for the right amount of time until it cracks. And then the bean left out to set for a day while the flavor is developed. But then it's ground, it's put into a grinder, and then it's passed through boiling hot water and into your cup and my cup, and then we can enjoy it. And trust me, this coffee is of great value. You know, This actually is my personal coffee cup. My children gave it to me. No, I don't use it. I use it for paint. But uh, <laughs> it's actually quite a process just for a cup of coffee. Um, but we would know what our day would be like without it, of course. 
point is this, that there's almost nothing of value that exists in natural form that doesn't undergo at least some form of transformation in order to let it realize its ultimate value. It's just the way things work. Now, what about a man or a woman? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, a famous verse. As soon as I begin to quote it, you'll recognize it. It's Paul the Apostle. He speaks for God to his people, and he says this. He says that we are his, God's, workmanship, and that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before ordained or planned that we should walk in them. That is, we're created in Christ Jesus. The created is that we're made or shaped. And the fact that it's in Christ Jesus means that it's something that happens later in life. Because none of us come into this world as Christians. It's, that's why we call it being born again, because we're born once after the flesh, but then later we're born into Christ should we receive the gospel. And it's at that point that God begins a work of transformation within our lives where he now is creating or shaping us in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose. We say, well, what is it that God is making? The answer is in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. John, the author of Revelation, he says this. He says that this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And here's what he's making us. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we realize, we recognize that we are in the hand of God. We're his workmanship. He's making something. He has a purpose, a plan. We're not going to be a loaf of bread or a diamond ring or a cup of coffee. But God has something for us. He's making us into kings and priests for his eternal kingdom. So how does he do it? How does God take the raw materials of a man or a woman, what we bring to him, and then reshape it and remake it or transform it into that valued substance that he calls a king or a priest? We've been studying here now in this section of 1 Samuel, the life of David. And we're witnessing firsthand the process of God in taking a man and transforming him into a valuable vessel. And in these chapters, what we're seeing is the means and methods whereby God does that, how he does it, along with the lessons that are learned in David's life as he experiences the transformational hand of God upon him. So God is doing stuff with his hand from heaven. David is feeling the effects of that in his life on earth, and he's learning lessons. Things are being sown within his heart that are going to make up who he is going to be when God is completed and finished. And so what we get from it as we study his life is that we can relate our experience as God makes and shapes us into something valuable to David's experiences. We can see the lessons God learned taught him, and we can learn them for ourselves. And here's the point where I'm bringing this introduction, this long now introduction, is that the things that happen to us in this life carry with them the opportunity for education. Now, it's not a guarantee. You could miss the lesson. God could do things in your life, and you could complain your way through it and miss it totally and not get it at all. But the opportunity is always there for something to happen in your heart through the things that you endure 
that will change and transform you and make you more of what God is desiring you to be. And so David's circumstances teach us what he learned, and it makes sense of our trials as well. Now, we left off in chapter 22. In the last chapter, we saw that David was reduced, yes, I said reduced, to a crust of bread. He had risen to fast fame in Israel. He'd become a folk hero overnight. Goliath had fallen down. He chopped off his head. He defeated the Philistine champion. And in that, he became the hero of Israel. The women chanted, David has killed his tens of thousands. His reputation was in high esteem and honor. The people trusted David and loved him. And and, and he was just on his way. He was shooting for the stars. But through the circumstances that he found and the hand of God within his life, there was a jealous king who wanted him dead. And in one day, his world was turned upside down. He became a fugitive. He went from a folk hero to a fugitive, and he lost everything. He lost his position, his home. He lost his provisions, his possessions. And he even lost his reputation as rumor began to spread fast that David tried to kill his own wife, even though it wasn't true. Then in chapter 21, we saw his immediate reaction to that. He went to the priests and, you know, needed some food. He needed a sword, so he told a lie. And that's going to become pivotal later on in the story. And then he fled to Gath, a a city of the Philistines, where he made a fool of himself, a, a temporary backslide in David's life. And now where we pick up, we join David as he escapes with his life from Gath And we come to chapter 22 in the narrative. And this is where David begins his life as a fugitive. Now, this portion of David's life is going to last about six or seven years. He's about 23 or 24 years old at this point. And he's going to spend these years running for his life, not sure if Saul will catch him and succeed or if he will escape and that God's destiny will ultimately be realized. Um, but, but here's what happens at this portion of David's life, is that he begins to embrace the circumstances that he's in. He realizes that these things that are happening to him are from God, and rather than seeking to escape them or deny them or pretend that they don't exist, he begins now to operate within the framework of those trials and tribulations, and he realizes something that if we realize, we'll be well off, and that's this is that the fastest way out of these uncomfortable things is to grow through them. Not around them or escape, but go right through and embrace what's to be. And so uh, chapter 22, and we're going to go through 22 and 23 by way of summary before we go back and and, kind of look at the things that, uh, that, that David learned in them. And I call this segment the beginning of David's real rise to greatness. We saw the flash in the pan firework rise to greatness last time. But this is now the, the one that will last. Well, chapter 22 begins, David flees the Philistine city of Gath. And he comes now to the cave of Adullam. It's in the territory of Judah, which was kind of his home county, if you would. It's not Bethlehem proper where he was from, but it's a region about 20 miles south of Bethlehem, about midway on the western side of the uh, Dead Sea there in Israel. It's a desert region. It's very dry. And he finds a cave there, and he kind of holes up within this cave. Well, it happens that his brothers, his mother and father, realize that their life is in danger because David's a fugitive. So they come to David to the cave for his protection. 
We also read in those early verses that there were 400 others, those that were distressed, those that were in debt, and those that were discontented. Anybody here fit into the framework of those things? And they also came to David seeking his leadership and his guidance. And we see that David was willing to embrace them uh, and lead them in that uncomfortable situation. Well, David takes his parents to Moab. He leaves Israel for their safety. They're getting old. It says that uh, Jesse went for an old man back in the days when uh, David was first met by Samuel. So they're getting old at this point. And so David takes them out of the, the nation. He brings them to Moab and he puts his parents with the king of Moab. And he asks him to just watch over them, which he agrees to do. And they stay there all the years that David is kind of fleeing from Saul while they're waiting. But David decides while he's there, he says, hey, this is pretty good. I'm in Moab. Uh, I get a certain amount of respect here. Saul can't kill me. But a prophet named Gad comes to David and he says, hey, Dave, you're not going to be the king of Moab. You're going to be the king of Israel. You got to go back. And so David goes back. He leaves Moab. He goes back to Israel, uh, back into the area uh, of Judah. And and then we kind of break scene there and we go to Saul. And where we find Saul, we see him having a pity party, leaning upon his staff, sitting under a tree, and complaining to his men, which were his family, the tribe of Benjamin, asking for their help. And he basically bribes them. He says, look, I'm the king, and I've got the power of pork. And he says, if you help me, I'll make sure that you guys get the best jobs. I'll make sure that you get the land. And it, but, but I need you to make your allegiance with me and not to keep conspiring against me with David. And it's actually quite humorous, uh, little weepy, weepy thing that Saul does there. But, but none of the people speak up except for the one man, you'll remember his name, Doeg. Remember the Edomite that was in the temple or in the tabernacle when David went to the priest? There was a servant of Saul there named Doeg, and he overheard the conversation between David and the priest. And so he speaks up and he says to Saul, he says, hey, I saw the son of Jesse and he came to Ahimelech the priest. The priest gave him bread. The priest gave him a sword. The priest prophesied over him, prayed for him and sent him on his way. But he spins the story and he doesn't tell him that the priest didn't know what was going on. So here's what happens. Saul sends for Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech comes with 84 of his family members And they gather to where Saul is, and Saul interrogates them. He says, did you help David? Did you strengthen the conspiracy that he is bringing against me and against my authority? And the priest denies, and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. David came. He's your most faithful and trusted servant. He asked for food and a sword. I gave him food and a sword, and he was on his way. Well, Saul does something so despicable. He says, I can't believe that you would conspire, and then you would lie. You will surely die. So he commands his servants to kill Ahimelech and the other priests that were with him. But his servants say, we're not going to kill the priests of the Lord. You just, you don't do that. You know, uh, black clothes, blood red, the two things don't go together. We're not doing it. Doeg stands up and says, I'll do it. And so Doeg slaughters Ahimelech. He slaughters 85 priests in Tolda that were there. But then he goes one step further and he goes into the city of Nob, which was the city of the priests, And he kills everyone in the city, all the the women, all of the children. He kills all the livestock. I mean, that's why you don't let an Edomite uh, into your, you know, your realm, so to speak, because eventually they'll turn on you. And that's exactly what happened there. One man escapes, a man named Abiathar. He was the son of Ahimelech, and he flees and he runs to David. He gets to where David is. 
He tells David what happened, and David owns responsibility for the death of Ahimelech and the priests. He said, this is my fault. I lied, and I wasn't honest about what I was doing there, and I have occasioned, through my lie, the death of all of those priests. It's my fault. Nevertheless, he says to Abiathar, stay with me, you'll be safe with me, and you come to the end of 22. In 23, David hears word from where he is that the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, have invaded the town or the village of Keilah, a city or a village in Israel. And that they're stealing the harvest. They've gone in, and as the Philistines often did, they were taking the food of the people. So David prays. And he says, God, do you want me to go and fight against these Philistines in Keilah? And God says, go. So David mobilizes his men who at first draw back in fear. They say, no, we, we don't want to go. We're afraid here. We don't want to fight. And David prays again, and God says, no, I want you to go. So David leads his men. They go into Keilah. They defeat and overthrow the Philistines. And they bring peace and normalcy back into this village of Keilah. Well, Saul, King Saul, finds out that David is in Keilah and he rejoices. He says, got him. Keilah is a fortified city. And if David's in the city, once I get there, he's mine. Because there's no way out except the one way in that is also the one way out. And so David realizes that Saul is going to come for him. So David prays again. And he says, God, I've got two questions for you. Number one, is Saul going to come and seek me here? And number two, if he does, will the men of this city throw me, give me and my men to Saul to spare themselves? And God answers David and he says, yes and yes. Saul's going to come. The men aren't going to cover you. And so David says to what is now 600 men, so his company, his crew is growing. And he says, we got to get out of here. And so they leave Keilah and they get out. And once Saul finds out um, that, that, that David has left, Saul kind of leaves. But David goes to the wilderness of Ziph. And there he's met by Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan finds him and he strengthens David. He says, David, my dad, he knows that you will be the king and that I will be there next to you. He already knows it. And he prays for David. He encourages him. And then Jonathan goes to his house. And it shows that there was a divide between Saul and his son, which is no surprise as Saul couldn't really get along with anybody. Um, but then Saul makes a covenant with the Ziphites. They make an agreement that they're going to deliver David to him. There's a little bit of a cat and mouse game as David runs around one side of the mountain, Saul and his men around the other, and they kind of chase each other for a while. And David is just about to, you know, have Saul's men bear down on him. And a messenger is sent to Saul that the Philistines have invaded the land somewhere else and that he's needed immediately. And so Saul and his troops withdraw and David is providentially spared. And you come then to the end of chapter 23. So what are the lessons? What's the application or the things that God is doing in David's life or teaching him in this season, uh, this portion of what he's going through? And I have three things, if you're taking notes, that you can jot down uh, very briefly. Number one is this, and I think it's an important one. I think we all need to hear this is that your success in this life and in the will of God does not exist within your circumstances, but in what's in your heart and within the call of God that's upon your life. Or to say it another way, your success in this life is not bound up in your job, your position, your title, your income, your status, 
socially or culturally, your credentials, the amount of money you have, your education, none of those things define or contribute to your level of success in the Christian life or in the world as you are called of God. In the world, those things may make a difference. They may help. But as it concerns your success in the eyes of God, none of those things mean anything. Your circumstances are irrelevant. Right now, where you work, who you are, your family background, your income status, what, all of those things that you would use to describe or, or, or explain who you are, none of those things mean anything in terms of your success. Rather, success is the byproduct of what you are or what exists within your heart. Think about this for a minute. David had, while he was in Israel, a perfect set of circumstances. He had fame. He had position in the palace. He had a sterling reputation. He had authority. He had esteem. He had women singing his praises. Everybody loved David while he was in Israel. But then he lost it all. His circumstances completely changed. What seemed like a ticket to forever, all of a sudden dropped out and he was nothing. Reduced totally to a crust of bread. However, the stuff that was inside David, that afforded him the fame and the reputation and the circumstances that he enjoyed in Israel, those things couldn't be taken away from him. They existed within his heart. They were the virtues and the value that God had placed in him. And so therefore, even though his circumstances changed, what's inside of him didn't, and therefore his success will grow again. Do you understand? Success in this life is not based upon where you work or what you do. It's based upon what's inside of you. That's what matters. And if what's inside of you carries value, then you're valuable and you're going to succeed, even if your circumstances change. You could lose everything tomorrow. You could lose your job. You could lose your money, your bank accounts, your investments, your plans. Everything could change. But if what makes you you is not those things that are outside, but what you are inside then you're going to succeed again because what's inside will outgrow or come out and you will uh, see it happen on the outside. What kind of man uh, was David? There's three, uh, four, four instances within this passage where David could have made an excuse to go back or go home. And in four occasions, he doesn't do it any of those times. The first was when his parents and those 400 men came to him in the cave. They said, we need a leader. David didn't say, you need a what? I'm in a cave. I don't have anything. I have a sword and even the bread is gone. We've got nothing. Hey, why don't you come back to me later on in my life when maybe I amount to something or my circumstances are a little bit better? He says, no. He goes, this is where God's got me. This is how God's going to use me. And so he can use me in a cave as much as he can in a palace. And so he says, yes. And he takes the opportunity. He goes to Moab where he brings his parents. The prophet Gad says, Dave, go back to Israel. Go back to Judah. What? Are you crazy? Saul wants me dead. If I go to Israel, it'll be a life of me just wondering if I'm going to even survive to see the morning. I'm not going back there till Saul's gone. God can raise me up and teach me what he wants to teach me here in the safe place, the safety of Moab. David doesn't do it. He says, you're right. That's the crucible, the fire, the furnace, where God's going to make me what he wants me to be, and that's where I need to be. He doesn't make an excuse. He goes back because he knows it's the will of God. He knows it's right. The third time he could have made an excuse is at the end of chapter 22 when 
Abiathar comes and says, hey, my father, the priests, the city of Nob, they're dead. David could have easily said, that Saul is going to burn in hell. He didn't do that. He said, it's my fault. They're dead because I told a lie. He didn't put the blame on someone else, make an excuse. He owned it. He said, if I had told the truth, they would be alive. This is my fault, my responsibility. He took responsibility for it himself. And then number four was when he heard news that the Philistines had invaded Keilah. He could have said, like many of us probably would, he would say, too bad there's no leadership in Israel. It's too bad there's no one here that's doing anything about these Philistine invasions. Man, if, if the leadership of our government had any sense, they would know how to address this problem by now. We've only been in this land for 400 years. I mean, this is nothing new. We should be ready for this. He doesn't do that. He says, God, do you want me to do something about this problem? And God says, no, nah, David, someone else will do it. Just sit down, kick back. No. He said, God says, yeah, you do it. And David doesn't make an excuse. Even when his men didn't want to go fight, David said, no, we cannot sit by and do nothing. We've got to do something. We see that's the kind of heart that David had, see? He wasn't going to push life away when the opportunity for life came. He was going to embrace it for all that it was and operate within dire circumstances to be the man or the woman, if you're a woman here, David wasn't a woman, but that God wanted him to be. Jesus said this. He said, I am come to give you life and that more abundantly. That's his will for every one of us. But do you realize that abundant life carries with it something that we often ignore? It's called abundant busyness. If you're going to live abundantly, and you're going to live on various fronts, and you're going to be abundant in the way you live, you're going to have a lot going on in your life. And you have the choice. You can either kick those things away and say, no, I'm too busy, or my circumstances aren't right, or maybe later on in life when I have more money or more time, I'll do those things. Or... You can embrace the opportunities that God's given you to grow, to bear fruit, and to prosper and succeed. Not only does Jesus say that he'll give us abundant life, he also says that he'll give us the strength and the resources we need to do the things that he's called us to do. He's the one that supplies our need according to his riches in glory. And so if he gives us an opportunity to live, he's going to give us the strength, the grace, and the joy to live that kind of life. That's the kind of man David was. And so whatever circumstances he was in, he was going to be a man of God. And God would honor that, and God will do the same things for us. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing is impossible for you and me when we embrace what God has us in and we do what God has called us to do. The second lesson that David learns in this uh, uh, situation is that decisions are far-reaching. And he's going to need to know that because he's going to be the king. And he's going to need to realize that the decisions he makes, even in small and seemingly insignificant things, are going to affect others greatly. He told a little white lie to preserve his own life. He needed bread. He needed a sword. And there was absolutely no way he could ever figure out in his mind how that would ever cause a problem in the future. But it did. His decision in a small thing made a big difference in someone else's destiny. It cost someone else death. You say, well, how could David have known that that would ever happen? I mean, I would have done the same thing. Exactly. That's why we're called to just do what God says. For David, that would be don't tell a lie. Don't lie. Be honest about the circumstances. Well, I can't, I can't tell the truth right now. I mean, what if it doesn't work out? Well, what if you don't tell the truth, David, and 85 people die 
and the whole city is lost. See, when we honor God by doing what he says, God makes sure he covers our back in the unseen and unknown things. You understand? The decisions that we make are far-reaching. And the number three is that man will always let you down, but God will always come through. David delivered the men of Keilah. Had it not been for David, they probably would have lost their lives and they most certainly would have lost their provisions because the Philistines had invaded. It was David who took the initiative to take his men and go in and deliver the people of Keilah from the hand of the Philistines. He saved them. They owed him a debt of gratitude. But when David said, God, are they going to give me up over to Saul? God said, yes. Now, David didn't get angry. He didn't get bitter. He didn't throw up his hands in the air, but rather he just said, okay, guys, it's time to move on. And he picked up and he left. And later on, in, even in tonight's study, we're going to see that David sends a blessing, the spoils of a victory, back to the rulers of Keilah later on. Jesus said this. Jesus said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who use you spitefully. That's what Jesus said about the way that we're supposed to live. Now, we read those verses and we ascribe to them that they are the highest ideal. There's no better way to live than to do what Jesus said, to bless those who curse, love your enemies. We agree with that inside, but we find ourselves struggling with the how. How do you do that? How can you pray for someone who has... Basically, you saved their life and now they're going to give you over to death. Here's the answer. Here's how you do it. Is that you be satisfied in God and understand what's in man. Be satisfied in God and understand what's in man. We feel scandalized every time people do something selfish that lets us down. We go, what? They did something selfish? And we get offended, we get scandalized. Meanwhile, we're doing something selfish here and something selfish there and completely ignoring what we are, you know. But we're angry at everyone else for their selfishness and the things that they're doing. We're scandalized by it, you know. David feels the scandal of the selfishness of the men in Keilah. But he doesn't get angry at them. He just leaves and then he blesses. And here's why. Because he knew that God would never let him down and that God had his back. God had him. Here's the key to having successful uh, relationships and doing this thing. Here's the key to it. A successful marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's successful leadership, or even successful followership, if that's a word, following people. Here's what it is. Is that be satisfied completely in the Lord. That's it. Don't be satisfied in your spouse. Don't count on them to fulfill your needs and never let you down. Be completely content in God. And understand what man is. And it'll work out. Same thing with parenting, with leadership, with people who you might be following as they lead you. The Apostle Paul talked about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He said that this is my glory, that I want to experience his sufferings. The pinnacle of Christ's sufferings were the selfishness of man in response to the love of God. The more I love, the less I am loved. But uh, unresponsive, unreciprocated love is the highest uh, road. It's God's highest road. And, and, and David was learning that in this thing. Don't trust in men. Trust in God. Well, we come to chapter 24, and David passes a critical test. Saul returns. You remember the cat and mouse game that we left off at the end of 23? Saul returns from fighting the Philistines. He continues to hunt David. He takes 3,000 of his men. He finds out that David is hiding in En Gedi. 
And Gedi is actually a very beautiful place in Israel. It's, again, along the Dead Sea, but it is just absolutely astonishingly beautiful. There are waterfalls, wild goats. It's just an incredible place. There's natural caves, a lot of places to hide. And so David kind of takes up fortitude there. Saul comes with his men, and David is hiding in the caves there in En Gedi. Well, it just so happens that King Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so he steps aside for a little privacy into one of the caves that are there, and it just so happens to be the very cave where David and his men are. And so there Saul is, and the men that were with David kind of nudge him a little bit with the elbow, and they say, hey, this is your chance. Get him. Kill him. God's delivered him. How could you deny that this is the hand of God bringing your enemies right to you? Go get him. And David says, no, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. His time will come, but I am not going to be guilty of it. But David sneaks over in stealthy fashion to the place where Saul is seated or whatever, sleeping. I don't know how he does this, but he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And then it says that his heart immediately was convicted. His heart was grieved inside of him. The Spirit of God was grieved in him when he did that because of the symbolic gesture of cutting someone's robe. It meant a cut or a jab at their authority, so to speak. But David does it nevertheless. And Saul arises. He goes out of the cave. He gets a few steps away, and David emerges from the cave. And he says, Saul, my father, King Saul. He acknowledges him with respect. And then he bows himself to the ground. And then he says, let it be a witness to you this day that God delivered you into my hands. And my men even encouraged me to kill you. And I had the opportunity, but I didn't do it. And here's the proof. And he shows to Saul the corner of his robe. And he says, why are you chasing after me like a flea? Let this be a witness that I seek no harm towards you at all, even though you want me dead. Well, Saul can't deny the fact that David could have killed him. And so Saul relents. He apologizes to David in a show of false humility, and Saul goes home for a season. So Saul leaves David, but David stays in En Gedi. He doesn't leave or quit because he knows this thing isn't over. So what's the application here, the lesson that David's learning? Here's what it is for you and for me. Here's what we take. Stay in the oven until you're done. David called Saul the anointed of the Lord. He said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, wait a minute. The Bible tells us that the spirit of God had departed from Saul and that he no longer was the anointed of the Lord. That anointing was actually upon David's life. So why would David call Saul the anointed of the Lord, knowing full well that Saul had been rejected by God? Because in David's mind, even though Saul was no longer the anointed of the Lord as king over the land, he was the anointed of the Lord as the instrument that God was using to shape and refine David. He was anointed for that. And David recognized it. He realized, no, God is using Saul in my life right now to make and shape me and turn me into what I'm supposed to be. And I cannot stop what God is seeking to do. And that's a real key. You've got to let God finish what he's doing in your life and shaping and making you what he wants to make you. Oftentimes, God gets us in a fix. He puts us into something that's too heavy for us or that bothers us or that grinds us. Or he puts someone in our life, a boss or a neighbor or a, you know, an acquaintance or even a family member. 
he put, and they grate on us, and it just, it hurts, and we just would do anything to get them out of our life. We, we just don't want them there at all. And so what happens is, is that you try to fix the problem. But what you're doing is you're trying to fix something that God has put in your life to fix you. And so what happens is you're trying to fix God's fix. And so now God has to bring another fix to fix the fact that you're trying to fix his initial fix that he was using to fix you in the first place. And then you try and fix that and God has to bring another fix. And so he's fixing the fix that you've tried to fix. Do you you see what starts to happen? And you throw your hands up and you go, ah, exactly. Because God is going to stop at nothing to produce the kind of character that he desires to bring out of our lives. And he's going to use those things. The Bible says that you and me, that we are living stones. And we are being cut and shaped for a place of eternal setting in his kingdom, his holy house. And God uses other living stones to grind the rough edges off of us. So if God's got you in a fix or in a fire, let him fix or let it burn so that you can become what God wants you to be. And David recognized that. He said, I'm not going to kill him. And I'm not even going to go home and pretend this problem doesn't exist anymore. I'm going right back into the cave because I know Saul's going to be back again. And Saul will be back again. So David uh, passes the test. The other lesson that David learns is that God will preserve you and God will fight for you. And David needed to know that. Um, We come to chapter 25, quite a long chapter. It's the narrative um, where Nabal and Abigail uh, meet David and his men. Famous chapter. Beginning of the chapter, Samuel dies. All Israel gathers together to mourn. The lamp of Israel had gone out. Uh, there was a great mourning there. And then David goes back to his, uh, his fugitive status in the wilderness of Paran. And, and he comes into the, uh, the arena or the area of a wealthy man named Nabal. We're told that he was rich. He was a landowner. Uh, we're told that he married up. Because his wife was a woman whose name was Abigail. It says that she was wise and she had an understanding heart and that she was of a beautiful countenance. However, it says that Nabal was a son of hell uh, or a son of Satan is what it literally um, says to describe him. Well, as David is there amongst the servants of Nabal, he becomes kind of a wall to them. He protects them in their endeavors. He doesn't allow anyone to spoil their sheep or ruin Nabal's inheritance or his land or anything that's there. And a feast day comes. The sheep shearing begins. And David grabs a couple of his servants and he says, I want you to go to Nabal. And I want you to tell him that David has been here among you. And, you know, this is, God has prospered you. And I'm praying my peace upon you. Could you lend us provisions so that we could eat? some bread, you know, perhaps some meat, whatever you've got, could you give it to us? And it says that Nabal answered the servants of David roughly. And he said, who is David that I should do anything for him? There's many servants that break away from the master's house, but why should I take my food and my drink that I have for my servants and give them to this man who I don't know? And seven times in that verse, he talks about, he has the I, me, my's, you know. And so the men kind of walk backwards on their heels. They don't know what will happen. They come back to David and they give him word of what Nabal said. And David gets angry. It's the first time that we see David get angry at someone other than perhaps Goliath, whom he got angry at back in chapter uh, 15, you know. But David gets angry at this man, Nabal, over this. and, And we see the first crack in David right here. Because he tells his men, he says, get your swords 
And then he goes and gets his sword, and he says, he says, God, do more to me if there are any males left alive in the house of Nabal by this time tomorrow. Now, that's insane here. <laughs> you know, David says he's going to go and take these guys out. Well, one of the servants goes back to the house and tells Abigail, the wise, understanding, beautiful wife, what happened. And the servant says, look, David and his men have been nothing but good to us. They've protected us. They've preserved us. They've helped us in our trade. And this is what Nabal did. And he is such a son of hell, that's what they say to, to Abigail, that no one can even talk to him. And if we don't do something, David is going to come and he's going to take us out because Nabal humiliated his men. So you figure out what to do. So Abigail, being the wise and understanding woman that she was, she takes 200 loaves of bread. She takes some wine, a whole bunch of figs and raisins. She loads it on the donkeys, just donkey after donkey of provisions. And she quickly leaves without telling her husband and goes and meets David, who is incensed and is coming down the path to meet them. Well, Abigail comes to David and she lays prostrate on the ground before him. And she intercedes. She says, let the sin be upon me. She says, my, my husband is my husband. He, his name is Nabal, which means foolish, and that's what he is. He's, an, he's a moron, basically. Uh, I don't recommend women that you say that about your husbands, um, but I suppose that if, uh, well, n- never mind. Um, you know, take that up with God. You're not supposed to do that. But that's what she does. And then she speaks such incredible reason into David's ears. She says, God has a plan for you. He's protected and preserved you against those that have come out to seek your life. He's going to make you the king, and one day you're going to be the ruler. God's going to preserve and establish you, and all of your enemies are going to be as a stone that is launched out of a sling. And how foolish will you feel on that day that the crown rests upon your head when you realize and recognize that you killed some of your own people just because they wouldn't give you food, and you'll carry the guilt and the shame of that for the rest of your life. And David receives the correction of this wise woman, Abigail, and he says, blessed are you of the Lord. And he says, if it hadn't been for what you said, there wouldn't have been one male that would be left in the house of, uh, of Nabal by this time uh, tomorrow. And, and so Abigail goes her way. David turns around and he goes home. Well, when Abigail gets home, Nabal is drunk. He's having a feast. He's completely inebriated there in the home. And so she doesn't say anything to him. She waits till the next day. And after he sobers up and all the wine has gone out of him, as it says in the text, it says that she told him what David had purposed and planned to do. And it says that when he heard those words, his heart died within him. It went stone cold. And that 10 days later, he lost his life. He died. Well, David hears about it. He rejoices that God avenged him and that he didn't have to fight for himself. And then he says, hey, would you guys go get Abby? Uh, (laughs) Because... The second flaw in David's character um, begins to come out here. He says, she is hot, and I want to marry her. And so, (laughs) that's what happens, you know. Men of God are men indeed, you know. So he he does it right, but he does it. And so he sends for Abigail uh, now in this thing, and and we come up upon the end of the chapter. So what are the lessons? Uh, What is is it that the Holy Spirit would have us to, to consider for ourselves in this? And here's what it is. It's a big one, and don't miss it. Is that pride can happen to anyone, and pride will destroy anyone. The Bible says that pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destructions. 
Now, what happens here with Abigail interceding with David is so critical because it's the difference between David becoming a Saul and David becoming a David. Because if David had gone through and killed those men, the result of that is that he would have been just like King Saul. Anyone who opposes me, I'm going to steamroll him and take him down. That's not the kind of man that God is, nor it's the kind of man that God wants to be ruling over his people. And so it is so critical. Pride is such an incredible thing. Pride is the only disease that everyone knows you're infected with it and you're the last to find out. That's the nature of pride, is that everyone knows you have it except you when you have it. David's getting comfortable in this leadership role. He likes it. He, 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 things are kind of going his way, and he doesn't, but wait a minute, think about it. Is he mafia? I mean, really? I mean, that's what he's acting like, right? I protect you. I keep the sheep. You know, we set up the wall, and nothing happened to you. And when I needed the food, I come and get the food, you know. And, and if you don't provide the food, you get to the dead fish, you know. That's what's happening. Who is this David? I want my David back, you know. We get him back. Nabal was a jerk, but he was right. It wasn't David's to lay claim to. It was his, and he could do with it what he wants. And so David had no business threatening this man's life over the fact that he was denied. For you and me, pride is part of the human condition. First John 2.16, it says that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And every one of us is susceptible to falling into this arena of pride. And left to ourselves, we will, every one of us. Success would destroy every one of us. So what's our saving grace? How can we be on guard against pride? Here's the answer. Be willing to receive correction. That's what David had going for him here. Is that he wasn't so stubborn and set in what he was going to do that when someone would reason with him, he wouldn't listen. He listened to the reason that Abigail brought, and that became his saving grace. And when we become unteachable and unapproachable, then we're set for a fall. Pride is going to destroy us. And David learned that lesson. One more thing before we move on, and that's that these cracks that we're seeing in David's character, the crack here with his pride beginning to show up, and then the pride with the women. He actually takes two wives in this chapter, not just Abigail, but another woman named uh, 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 um, him, I can't say it, you know, Ahinoam, I think, he takes two wives in this chapter, and that's another flaw. That one's going to cost him dearly later on when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. But listen, these cracks, though they are weaknesses, they are vital, and they are actually a part of what God is seeking to produce in David's life. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he said this. He said that we are jars of clay, and that we have the privilege of possessing the light of the glory of God within these jars of clay. But if the jars are without cracks or without flaw, then the light is never exposed and seen because it's covered by the perfectly intact clay pot that covers it. And it's the cracks in our character and the flaws that make us human that so often are the thing that cause God's light to shine out of us the brightest. And that's part of what God's doing in this. He's revealing David's flaws so that God's glory is revealed and God gets the glory for what he does in David's life and not David himself. Your flaws and my flaws don't disqualify us. They actually bring glory to God's blessing upon our lives. And so these are actually a good thing. We come to chapter 26. 
David spares Saul's life again. David hears word, hey, Saul's on the hunt for you. He goes out, he sends messengers, he says, are you serious? Find out where they are. And so the men go out, they find out where Saul is. David goes at night. He goes down into the camp with Abishai, one of the servants there, the brother of Joab, who is David's general later on in life. And God had put a deep sleep over all the men of Saul. Abishai says to to David, he says, David, please, just let me do it. I won't have to strike him twice. I'll use his own spear. It'll be quick and painless and it'll be over. This nightmare will be over. And David says, no, 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 no. He'll go by chance or he'll go in battle or God will do it some other way, but we will not lift our hand upon it. But do this, take the spear, take the water that's by his head and let's get out of here. So they take the spear in the water. They go to a mountaintop within earshot of the army that's resting down in the valley. And David cries out and he says, hey, Abner, who is Saul's right hand, his general, his bodyguard. Abner. He says, you deserve to die because you didn't protect the life of the king. And Saul wakes up and he says, David, David, is that you? Is that you, my son, David? What is this? And, and David chides Abner for his failure to defend the king. And then again, David defends himself. He says, hey, if I wanted to kill you, I could have done it tonight. But the fact that I have your spear and your water, let it be proof again to you that I have no ill feelings towards you at all. I've spared your life again. And Saul repents. This time he says, I have sinned. I have played the fool and done and erred greatly, is his word. And then he actually blesses David. He says, you are going to do well and prosper. And and amazing, you know, is Saul among the prophets? He is, because that's exactly what's going to happen. And it says that Saul then, again, went home. Um, The application or the lesson here, the thing that God would would have us to consider is this. And it's probably one of the hardest lessons that, that we have to learn, and every one of us has to learn it. It's that God is going to take you to the breaking point. He's got to do it. It hurts, but it's the way he does it. I think of Jacob. 20 years, he suffered under Laban's poor leadership. And when it was finally time to go home, greatly enriched, he thinks, I'm finally out of the woods. He hears word that Esau, his arch enemy from 20 years previous, is coming towards him, armed with 400 servants. What? God, I can't take another day of this, and now I've got to deal with this? I think of Joseph, who spent 10 years in the system in Egypt. He finally catches a break. The butler and the baker are arrested. And Joseph interprets their dreams. He thinks, this is it. It's finally over. I'm finally going to get out of the frying pan. And it says that the butler and the baker forgot Joseph. And he was in the prison for two more years after that. Probably the longest two years of his life. And God has this thing that he does. And he does this in every one of our lives. If we want to go the distance, if we want to follow him and allow him to do his work, is that he piles as much as we can possibly handle upon us. And we feel like all the weight of this, it's crushing me. And finally, he puts on that last weight. And we say, we almost have a hope in us. Because things seem so bad that they can't possibly get any worse. And we say, finally, I've hit rock bottom, and I can only go up from here. And then we hear, off in the distance, as we're straining under that way, we hear, beep, 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 beep. It's a semi-truck backing in with another load of of stuff (laughs) that's going to be dropped upon our life. And we say, God, I can't take another thing. There's nothing else that I can take. What are you doing? And God says, I know. 
And we say, what are you, the ant bully? I mean, are you just trying to break it? I mean, what are, what are you doing? I wasn't made for this. And God says, no, I've got to break it. Before the precious can be released, it's got to be melted. Before the worthless can be separated from the worthwhile, the heat has got to be turned up to the point where your structure is broken and you can't hold it together anymore. That's the point that David comes to here, having Saul come at him again in this way. And the reason we know that is because what happens in chapter 27, verse 1, and the verse will go up on the screen. It says that David said in his heart, he said, I will now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should quickly escape into the land of the Philistines. You know what David does here? He quits. He says, that's it. I can't take another day of this. He says, if I have to live one more day wondering if I'm going to live to see the morning, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, that's it. I quit. And he says, I'm going into the land of the Philistines. So chapters 27 all the way through 30. Huh, you see what I just did there? 27 all the way to 30. You're like, we see the clock. We know you're only in 26. How are you going to do this? Here's how. <laughs> in chapters 27 through 30, it's one narrative, but there's one final lesson that David needs to learn in this portion of his life. David goes to Achish, the king of the Philistines, the same king that he went to back a few chapters when he acted like he was insane and spit on his beard and scratched the doorposts. And he says, here I am, I'm at your service. Give me a city here and I'm going to fight for you. I'm no longer going to fight for Israel. So he wins Achish's trust. Achish gives him a city called Ziklag. And David begins to live for 16 months in the biggest lie of his life. Every day he goes into the southern portions of Israel where the Canaanites from Joshua's day hadn't yet been expelled. And he would attack a different city of the Canaanites. And he would take the spoil and he wouldn't leave a single person alive to be able to come out and report what was going on. And then he would go back to Achish with the spoils give to Achish all that he took in the battle and say, I went out and fought against the Israelites today and this is the spoil from the battle. And he did that every day for 16 months. He lied. He lived a lie. He said, I'm fighting for you against Israel, but in actuality, he was fighting against the enemies of Israel and bringing the spoils to Achish. And Achish believed him. He became the most reliable man that Achish had. But David was living a total lie. Now David gets himself into some trouble. Because the Philistines gather themselves in battle array against the Israelites. The battle lines are drawing again, and Achish comes to David and says, Hey, David, I want you to fight with me. We're going to go to war against your own people. And David, he can't, give, he can't blow his cover, so he says, Okay, I'll fight, and you'll get to finally see what I can do. You're going to see the skill of me as I go against my people. Well, on the other side, we have Saul and the Israelites. Saul, it's the famous episode where he prays and asks God for counsel, but God doesn't answer him, so he consults a witch. And you can read through uh, that chapter there, um, chapter 28, where Saul uh, goes through and he, he, he asks the witch of Endor to call up Samuel. It's a very interesting and intriguing um, interaction as Samuel comes up. Uh, we won't get into that and talk about the, the implications of it. But basically, Samuel rebukes Saul and says, Hey, if God's not answering your prayers, why are you bothering me? And then he says to him this. He says, This time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. David's going to become king. And the Philistines are going to win this battle. 
And so Saul kind of leaves that. He realizes he's got one day left uh, to live. He goes back into, um, you know, the camp of the Israelites and the battle goes on to uh, be prepared. You get to chapter 29 and David is providentially spared. Achish comes to David and he says, David, you cannot fight with me. The lords of the Philistines, the other rulers, won't let it happen. They don't trust you, even though you've been so faithful. David even, he's so backslidden at this point that he says, come on, please, let me, I want to do this. You know, he calls the bluff, and he says, no, you can't do it. So here's what happens, and this is where all this whole section is going. David goes back to Ziklag, chapter 29. When he gets there with his men, the Bible says that there had been a band of Amalekites. Does that name ring a bell? the people that Saul was supposed to destroy, but he didn't, a band of Amalekite raiders came in. They burned the city of Ziklag. They took every woman and child that was left there captive, including all of the possessions, the stuff, and the livestock. And when David returned to Ziklag, he found a city smoldering and all of the people and stuff gone. And it says that they wept until they could weep no more. And so distressed were they that the men even thought of stoning David because of the fact that he let that happen. He's out of the will of God. He's not supposed to be where he is. And now he's reaping because of it. It says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. He asked God for some counsel. God says, go. You're going to find him and you're going to recover everything. Not one thing will be lost. And so David takes his 600 men, 400 go, 200 stay behind to you know, uh, keep watch because they were too tired to go. They meet an Egyptian slave boy who was the servant of an Amalekite who had been abandoned by his master because he fell sick. They resuscitate him. They give him some food. They say, could you bring us to the Amalekites? He says, as long as you promise not to kill me or give me back to them, you got it. And so he leads them to the place. And when they get there, all the men are drunk. David and his men go in. And for 24 hours, They slaughter that whole host. They recover all of the people, including all of the spoils, everything that was taken. Not one thing is lost. David comes back to to Israel, and he sends parts of the spoils to all of the rulers of Judah. And there's an incredible transition that happens in that time. Chapter 31, the battle happens. Saul dies. Saul and all three of his sons die in a single day um, within that battle um, that, that ensued that day. Well, what's the lesson in all of this as we, as we come to a close here? What is the thing that God taught David or that David learned in this final portion uh, of his life? And here, here's what it is. It's the most important and sometimes the most difficult lesson to learn. And it's one word, grace. It's grace. Us Christians oftentimes are accused of, well, not accused, we're guilty of using a phrase that, that we like. It's that we do not have a religion, but we have a relationship. In other words, you and me, what we're doing right here, this isn't religion. The world looks at it and they say, you're religious. But we understand it. We know what it is. We're not here because we have to be. We're here because we get to be. We want to be because we want to know God and we do know God and he is real to us. We have a relationship with him. However, there are two different ways that a man or a woman can have a relationship with God. One is law, and the other is grace. Under the law, or to have a legal relationship with God, it looks like this. That my standing, or my position in Him, is conditional. It's based upon my performance 
to obey and to keep his commands. So if I'm doing well in my obedience and in my being a good little boy and reading my Bible and praying every day so that I grow, 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 and, and, I'm, and I'm checking off all the things I've got to do, well, then my relationship with God is good. But if I'm not doing so good, if I skip a couple days, if I miss a few church services, if my attitude is out of check and I don't immediately go repent or whatever, well, then, you know, God isn't quite as pleased with me. I can't expect that he's going to bless me. I can't expect that he's going to be with me. It just won't work like that. Uh, If I'm doing what I'm supposed to, I expect God's goodness. But if I'm not, then I don't. And thus, under the law, everything with God is conditional, revocable, and, and, and my relationship with him is a constant cycle of up and down, in and out, highs and lows, big swings between joy and despair, faith and doubt, blessing and not, Today he loves me and I feel saved, but tomorrow I think he's angry and I don't feel so saved. You know, and, and you kind of go through that whole thing and that all of that is indicative that your relationship with God is legal. It's under the law. The problem is this. It's extremely fatiguing. You get to a point where you say, God, I just can't do this anymore. Because the more I grow and learn, the higher the standard seems. And so my list of do's and don'ts is continually growing, but it seems like my experience of joy, rejoicing, and blessing, it, well, that's just not happening. I'm, I'm doing more, and I'm experiencing less. And you get tired, and you start to say, what's the point of this whole Christian thing? And what happens is you do what David did. I've had it. I can't do this anymore. I can't live one more day under this. And you quit. Oh, I'm still yours, God. You become like the New Jersey 18-year-old who ran away from home and then sued her parents to pay tuition. You know, you run away from God, but God, please just keep paying the bills. <laughs> you know, if you're still my God. I just don't want to, just really don't want much to do with you right now because I don't like what you're doing in my life, you know. It's because you're under the law. But here's what happens. You can't live that way. You get tired, and so you give up. And then what happens is you start constantly living, looking over your shoulder, going, okay, is he going to get me today? Is he going to blast me today? Am I going to lose my job today? You know, and, and you're just waiting for the bottom to drop out in your life because you're not doing anything that you're supposed to be doing now. You've just kind of checked out, so you're waiting for it to all to fall out. But here's what happens. It doesn't. You're going, every time the phone rings, you're going, hey, is this it? Every time the mail comes, you're like, oh, God, please, not this. You know, every time your boss walks in the room, you're like, this is it, I'm losing my job. But it doesn't happen. The pendulum never knocks you down the way you were expecting. And all of a sudden, you start to go, you know, I feel God's peace for some reason. I don't know why, but I feel God's peace. And I have a desire, I don't know why, to read his word. And, and, and I want to be in his presence. There's something that's happening inside of me, even though I feel like I'm further from God than I've ever been before in my life. What's happening? Well, it's grace. See, God is no man's debtor. Do you realize that God owes you nothing? He owes you nothing. And he will not pay you anything for anything that you do. So if your mindset is that if I do, then God will bless, guess what God won't do? Bless. That's right. Because he is no man's debtor. What God gives us is because of grace. It's because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross in fulfilling the law on our behalf and our simple believing it and receiving it and then enjoying what God did for us. 
And when we come to that point where no longer is it my performance, my do's and don'ts, my righteousness, but I say, God, I can't do this anymore. God says, good. Now let's start the love relationship that I've been desiring to have with you all along. And he begins to reveal himself in a way that we've never even known. We begin to taste and see the goodness of God. You find yourself wanting more of him. He becomes your treasure. He becomes your life in the things that you seek. And all of a sudden, God, as he even begins to bless you, you don't even recognize it because you are content. You're happy to be in him and to know him. And you become like Paul and you say, everything I have, rubbish that I may win Christ. Because there's no greater treasure than to feel his presence and his peace within my life. And your obedience now becomes appreciatory and not obligatory. In other words, the reason why you're doing what's right is not because, oh, I have to, or God's gonna, oh, I have to. No, no, no. It's, he's done it all for me. And I don't want to do anything that's going to grieve his spirit or quench the work within his life, or interrupt the fellowship that I want to have with him moment by moment. And you find yourself living a higher standard under grace than you could ever accomplish under law. But it can't happen until the law burns you out. Do you understand? David needed to learn it. I quit, he said. I'm going to Achish. For 16 months he lives a lie. And God metamorphosizes David's heart in that time. He leaves Ziklag in that season of his life a different man than he went in. Last week I shared with you, I said, one of the titles for the chapters, I don't know which one it was, was that a caterpillar can grow, but it can never fly. When you relate to God on a legal basis, the best you will ever be is a caterpillar. You'll grow, you'll eat, you're alive, but you'll never fly. You'll never realize what God made you to ultimately be. It's when you die under the crucifixion of the law and you're birthed again in grace. God, you love me because you love me. It's not because of what I do or my performance. It's because of what you did and my faith in you. Then you come out of the cocoon and you're changed. That's what happens to David. He goes into chapter 29 and 30. as a caterpillar, he comes out of it as a butterfly and his whole character is changed around. He's ready to become a king. Saul is taken off the scene and as we make the transition then into 2 Samuel, we're going to see David assume his place on the throne because God has been successful in bringing him to that place. The musicians can come in just a paragraph by way of conclusion as they make their way up here. God does not put these testimonies in the scripture for us because he simply wants to show off trophies that you could never attain to becoming. But rather, he puts them in the scriptures rather to showcase what he's willing and wanting to do within our lives. You don't have to be a lick different than David. God can accomplish the same things in you. He wants to do it. A diamond ring. A loaf of bread, a cup of coffee, your future. There's a process, but the outcome is precious. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you for this testimony of scripture. And I pray that you would take what it's taken me a long time to say, and that you would boil it down by way of application to every one of us. 
Lord, that we would recognize that those things that you're doing within our life are not to harm us, nor to frustrate us or exasperate, but rather to bring forth that essence of Christ and to cause us to know you in a richer and more real way and that we might live the life that you call abundant. And so, Father, we make it our prayer tonight that not one of us, Lord, would live one day in gaff, but that we might live a thousand days under your grace. Lord, would you fill us again with your spirit tonight? Would you draw us out of the fire? And would you finish that work that you've begun? That we might be those vessels and instruments that you would call precious as you complete your process of shaping and changing us. We make that our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together.